previous episode, Hardly Working began to look at employer resource networks, private nonprofits that work with coalitions of local businesses to improve outcomes for entry-level workers. This episode is a continuation of that conversation. During this segment, we completed the overview of an AEI report written by Dr. Luke Schaefer of the University of Michigan School of Social Work on the history, structure, and operating principles of the nonprofits that make up the National ERN Network. And then we engaged with audience questions on how ERNs work. Let's go back to James and just talk about, you came from HR. I've been in workforce development for 20 years now from a policy standpoint. We have these things called American Job Centers that are funded by the government to provide support to workers of all kinds as they're in need of training, in need of supportive services. How do you see the ERNs as being different than what we do through the American Job Center Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act programs? You know, the sole focus of the ERN and the success coach is supporting the employees or the incumbent workers of the member companies. So we're not trying to work in here in Michigan, it's called Michigan Work. So we're not trying to do pre-employment stuff. You know, we may align with a nonprofit like a Goodwill or a Hope Network or like 70 times 7, which is a re-entry program in Holland to align with that agency who's doing the pre-employment stuff. And then when we end up hiring somebody, we've got a process of onboarding them with a success coach that may be a little bit more intensive depending on, you know, the individual employee's background. But my experience as an HR person, you know, when the Workforce Development Center says, well, we do retention services, what that means is they call me every month to make sure the employee is still working. They're not really actively working with the employee on, you know, like the issue that Brent raised. Breaks go out, he's three weeks into employment. You know, Michigan Works was not there to help that employee. But, you know, the success coach is able to work with the employee and trying to find a resource to help fix the breaks and make sure the person gets back to work or find a, a ride share for a period of time while they get the car fixed. So I think that's where it's a little bit different. And then, you know, it seems like the public workforce system has got all these different categories. You've got youth programming. So you've got to be between 16 and 24 for this funding, or you've got to be for the Trade Adjustment Act, you have to be this population. And for this, you've got to be this population. You know, we try to meld all that together for the employers. So if we're working with the workforce development system, the employers don't need to know all those things. We just need to figure out how to mainstream it. So when they come into the, the company that the employee has access to a success coach, and we're very deliberate about using success coach, not case manager, not something like that, which sounds very clinical because the relationship continues from, okay, I've got help you get your car fixed. Let's do some financial literacy. The executives at your company have executive coaches professionally. You know, you have a coach. And so if you want to take additional training, what's the next step for you? And so it's success coaching, not, you know, basic case management. And I think that's where sometimes we have that disconnect with the public sector. And we have an opportunity because the success coach is on site at the company every week. And so they can reinforce those relationships. Whereas once they get a job, rarely does that employee go back to the workforce center to see their caseworker. 
So we have this problem of fragmentation within the workforce system where we divide up workers into various and try to you know, fit them into whatever the funding source is. To what degree are you seeing across the system, to what degree are you seeing non-low-wage workers utilizing ERN services? You don't fit the kind of the picture we have in our head of an entry-level employee or somebody who's maybe got those barriers or whatever, but just what ratio do you think of people taking advantage of these or rough estimate what we've seen you know nationally across the ERNs and we adopted some of the United Way language around Alice the assets limited income constrained employed so we probably have about 40% that are receiving public benefits you know we had a gentleman who was living in the woods behind his plant for his work and going in to warm up at night and at extreme to Probably another 40% that are the Alice population. They're beyond a benefit cliff, but sometimes they have greater needs. So the success coach has to braid together maybe a food pantry with, you know, some other resources to solve the problem of the budget shortfall for the family. And then we do have about 20% that are, you know, office workers or managers and things like that. A $80,000 a year manager going through a divorce and having to split households is equally as in crisis as, you know, somebody in the Alice population. And so, you know, we've had VP of HR for one of the manufacturing companies. Her father was early stages of Alzheimer's and moving in with her and her husband. And the success coach was able to help them navigate the Medicare system and then find some place for dad to go during the day while they went to to work. She's got a graduate degree. She probably could have spent a couple hours figuring it out, but by having a success coach, who's plugged into that system very easily, you know, got the answers that she needed. Yeah, I would agree. I would say that navigating the government agencies is really where we see a lot more of that, say, the usage of our salary workforce. But you, know, you look at the statistics, right? What do they say? 50% or more of the U.S. population doesn't have $1,000 in savings. So, you know, whether it be a, you know, an unexpected death or something of that nature, right? Where we come up with the funds for this type of thing, right? This is where you know, the ERN can help us bridge those gaps where maybe 30, 40 years ago when we were a smaller company and fewer employees, the company would write a check. Well, we can't just do that now because there's so many people in need. And that's where this ERN has really helped us in those aspects. But whether you be divorced, elder care, all those things are very big with, I'll say that non-low-wage worker population for us. So Jason, this is a, I mean, this is a program that you pay for. It has a value to you as a company. It is producing some sort of offsetting savings for you that helps cover the cost of the services that you're purchasing. It's, it's solving problems for you. How do you measure your return on investment as a business that takes advantage of this? Yeah, you know, there's two pieces to it. There is a, a financial piece, right? It is, which is the return on investment. And, and James and his team have done an excellent job of helping to provide us numbers on a monthly basis of how many people are using the services, how many people are engaging, and then you know what's that retention of those folks that are using the services. So we see that as a, hey, this is a cost save for us because anytime we have to, you know, we lose an employee, you know, that's going to cost us money in overtime while we find a replacement. And right now it's very difficult to find replacements, as well as you know, the cost just to train someone new. So there is a, an associated cost. I couldn't tell you exactly what that number is, but there is an associated cost. The other piece of it is, is we, we feel that it's really our duty to help our folks 
and be a good member of the community by helping our folks, you know, through some of these issues. A lot of times, right, wrong, or differently, the folks that, you know, are reentering the job in the workforce aren't used to diversity. And what I mean by that is as soon as they encounter some type of diversity in their lives, if the answer isn't right there and available for them, they kind of throw up their hands and, well, I guess I'm just going to have to quit because I don't know how to work through this. Where and, and that ERN has really helped us, you know, reach out to those folks and help those folks and assist those folks in a way that HR traditionally hasn't had, that we traditionally haven't been able to do. If you were to come to me and say, hey, uh, I'm about ready to get evicted, Jason, what do I do? I wouldn't know how to handle that, right? But that's where that ERN is able to help us handle that. And we feel it as part of our mission, if you will, or our being a good corporate partner with our employees that we can help them provide that opportunity. So yes, there is a financial piece to it, but there's also a broader being a good citizen of the area piece. Yeah, that reminds me of my visit with James back in 2008. So I think that was the first time I ever encountered the idea of sort of the, the idea of the triple bottom line, where you have profit, and then you have, I think in the case of the company we were talking to, it was Cascade Engineering, the environmental returns. But then also the social return. This is what we have identified as part of our mission as an employer is to contribute to a social return to the community around us. And I think, you know, some of the companies that have been in ERNs for, you know, like Sunset Association is in the group with, with Brent. We've got three manufacturing and two long-term care. Sunset is one of the long-term care and they've been doing it for quite a while. When they interview people, they have candidates actually say, hey, I want to work at Sunset because I heard you have a success coach that can help with XYZ. So they see it as a competitive advantage, even though they're doing it for the right reasons of helping their employees. You know, a CNA that needs to get to work is going to know that, you know, hey, this is an additional employee benefit that I can get here that I can't get anywhere else. I just really like the way Jason said it about sort of the motivation for this. So in my mind, it's too much to ask an employer to only do this because of the social benefit, right? I don't think we should expect employers to be social service agencies to, you know, only do things. I think they're firms that are trying to do well. But if we combine that, right, I think this sort of the triple threat that you mentioned sort of combined saying, you know what, I do this in part because it does help me with productivity. It doesn't 100% solve all my productivity problems. But I think as a company, you can probably watch. We added a success coach and we saw our retention of our our entry-level workforce improve over a period of time relative to what we would have expected, right? Adjusting for businesses. And on top of that, it's the right thing to do. So sort of trying to combine those two pieces together seems like the right approach. That was my next question, actually. I wanted to go to that you make reference to this in the report that, you know, there are a lot of things that people try in this area and all other areas of social policy where it looks really good. It looks like it's successful. It seems to be helping. You also acknowledge, though, in the report that selection bias could be at work in this project, you know, that the most able, the most open, the people who have sort of this intangible capacity for seeking help are the ones who are seeking it and finding it, and that that may introduce a kind of selection bias into this. So I want you to address that. But I also, I'd like to hear your thoughts on whether, even if that were true, would this still be worth doing? Yeah, there are actually two selection processes here, right? There's a selection process of people 
engaging the success coach and who who sort of shows up for help and who doesn't and what would their outcomes have been one way or the other. There's also the selection of the firms, right? So Jason was seeing these issues before he tuned in. And so as the researcher, you know, there's a question for me about, is it just that Jason's firm is thinking about these things? They could have done a variety of things, or is it the ERN model in particular? So in terms of like evaluation, the nice thing is, if it's driven by employers, you know, I, of course, love to do randomized control trials where we separate people into experimental groups and to control groups. And, you know, it helps me sleep at night when you can see the effect. But, you know, in the real world, if Jason adopts an ERN and decides a set of metrics that he's going to watch, so I, I would say a set of metrics sort of on retention, right, on productivity, are people more likely to show up for work? Do they have fewer people not calling in, you know, three days in a row who are otherwise good employees? And then, you know, the outcome metrics, like are people showing up at the success coach, right? If there's still only 1% of people going to the success coach, maybe we're not doing the success coach quite right. So there are a set of very tangible things that I think employers can set. And so I would say, like, commit to it. Decide what is the reasonable amount of time before you would see results. And then if you're doing better on those things, then, you know, I think we can worry less about, is that the precise, the only model that would sort of show you success versus like, it's one that has in the real world outside of nerdy Professor Schaefer's sort of <laughs> randomized control trials. And then, you know, I also am a believer in like policy wins. So I love the new best line, right? If employers get together and they say, you know what we really need is a bus that will bring people at 6 p.m. and take them home at midnight. And the greatest proof in the pudding, right, as I said, people, Milton Friedman says, people vote with their feet, is like, do people take the bus to work? Is that bus line full? Then I think we have to worry less. So, you know, I would love to do a, a randomized control trial of this sort of thing. But there are just lots of different metrics where we can say, okay, I think this is, I saw my retention improve. I saw my productivity improve. I've been thoughtful about that. So I've adjusted for the fact that, you know, other things in the environment might have affected those two a bit. And I think it's a good investment for me sort of based on this framing of like, it's good for my company and also good for society. I also think that helping somebody who maybe isn't completely the hardest off person not a no value proposition, you know, Absolutely. aren't the hardest up doesn't mean that they don't have significant challenges and that in supporting them through those, you're actually helping to kind of raise the boats in the community by reducing stress and increasing opportunity. That's a value too. So I agree with you. I don't think that it should be strictly like, you know, we need an RCT that's going to show us that if we put a dollar into this, we generate $5 in profit or whatever, it's more diffuse than that. And that doesn't mean that it isn't worth doing. Jason, did you want to say something about that? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, yeah, the return on the investment, you know, and, and you can do all the measures financially all you want. But, you know, when we actually jumped into this, you know, we were on a labor market. So what, it was about a year, year and a half ago, James, I think we started. But, yeah, you know, you're, yeah. we're in a, yeah, a labor market, right? Where we're just going out of control. So, you know, retention, you couldn't make sure that those people were staying with you through retention, but turnover was happening everywhere, you know, because there were so many more opportunities for people. 
But what really, you know, opened our eyes was just the straight usage. Hey, there is a need here for this. This is filling a need that, you know, we weren't necessarily aware existed because we were using it so much, you know, 26, 27, whatever the number is a month, people a month are using this, these services. So that's what really helped us sell it, you know, as we were trying to expand it right before the COVID hit is that, hey, there's a need that we were not aware and we were not filling that void. This is a way for us to fill that void. Yeah, and I think, you know, the relationship between the success coach and the employer, you know, so if you're doing a lot of hiring, maybe the success coach is involved in the orientation. So we get that relationship of trust built right off the bat. And they know who Christy is in your situation. We have about 80% of employees go to the success coach on their own. And then about 20% are supervisor referrals because we educate the supervisors Co-workers making referrals because they've been helped through the program and then HR referrals. So HR may see somebody that's struggling and make a recommendation for them to go see the coach. So we're trying not to miss those, you know, well, maybe the hardest served aren't getting to the coach. You know, we're trying to find ways of encouraging them through coworkers and supervisors and stuff. My next question is about the amount of emphasis within the program on kind of skills development. We talked a lot about sort of problem solving, helping employees figure out solutions to issues with their family or their transportation or, or whatever. But the advancement part of this is something we want to pay attention to as well. And I'm curious, both James and Jason, like what's the role of the ERN in terms of helping people advance and employment to get up to the next rung in the job to gain the skills that they need in order to be able to advance in their employment. So James, I mean, I'll be honest with you, we have not really scratched the surface on that portion of it yet, Brent. You know, so I'm gonna rely on James and what he's done with some of his other clients, if you will, or other companies he's worked with. But that that's not an area that we've really even been able to scratch the surface. So yeah. It's up to each ERN what their priorities are. So like I said, you know, Jason's group has three manufacturing and two healthcare. So some of the workplace stability or financial literacy or diversity training, you know, so that's not really skill-based, but it's, you know, culture building. I know you had a question on here about rural counties. We have at our Oceana Learn meeting this morning, and they've had five food processing companies that are in there. And they're out of district for the two community colleges. So there's a community college in the county to the north and a community college in the county to the south, but they don't have anything in their county. And what they did was they worked with a training provider, took a curriculum from Canada for food processing quality, were able to put together a registered apprenticeship with the Department of Labor. And now what they're doing is they broke it up into level one, level two. Level two is entry-level employees starting at their company, and their hope is to get level one into the junior-senior year of high school because, you know, the students are graduating and then they're driving to larger markets. But if they can show them that they have opportunity within Oceana County, that the companies came together where one company wouldn't do it by themselves, but, you know, five employers were able to, to get that registered apprenticeship through USDOL. So... You know, that's a very deliberate way of looking at skill building. And then I think a third thing is where, you know, like Fabricale down in Kalamazoo has all employees have to select a pathway. And so 
you know, we've had examples of employees that, you know, get to a point and they're struggling with the math component. The company already has to find out the classes they need to take, but the coach will find the employee a tutor in the community that can help them get over the part that they're struggling with so that they can graduate the class and then move up to the next level. So sometimes it's case by case. Other times it's the employers coming together to create something. Brent, if I could just say a quick word on this. Yeah. My understanding is that one of the big changes in terms of the human capital of workers is that employers do a lot less. As a general rule, they do a lot less training, investing in training than, than they did 30 years ago. And I think some of that is because the labor market has become more dynamic. People don't stay with the company, same company, or at least that's a perception. But, you know, often government, this is one of those things that I think government sometimes is challenged with. If the idea is that they're the ones that are going to provide the training, they often don't quite know what companies actually need, right? Or even like within, if they get the topic right, companies have very specific things, how they want things done. So I like to think that ERN is one way to sort of thread the needle on this one, right? To say if some groups of employers can get together and entrain collectively, right, in a similar field, they can get it right more and sort of provide that that product that I think government struggles to provide. And in one company on its own feels like this is too much lift for us. And we, we worry whether or not it's sort of a good investment given how often people move on. Yeah, and I think, you know, a company here in Michigan, we have something called the, it's called Going Pro. So it's a training grant for incumbent workers. And a company like Jason's is large enough where they could fill a class, they could probably run it however many times they need to, but it's the 100 employee smaller manufacturer that may benefit from a consortium grant. And then the ERN would really work with them to put together, you know, if we need welding or we need CNC training or something like that, or even OSHA training or, you know, iOS training and stuff like that, we build a class together with you know, maybe a couple people from each of the companies as opposed to, to fill a class as opposed to them not doing it because they can't take all of your supervisors off the floor at the same time. Okay. We have some questions coming in via social media and email, and I wanted to start getting some of those on the table. First from Mark Fabian at the University of Cambridge. And he's noting that there are some similarities here between this model and the flex security models that we see in Scandinavia. His question is, do you see opportunities to deepen the connections between ERNs and unions? Has that come up? James, you're working up in the upper Midwest, a lot of manufacturing. How does this interface with unions, unionized representation? I don't know if Luke has any thought on the comparison to flex security, but why don't we start with the relationship with labor unions? Yeah, I think Nextier Automotive is a good example. They're a GM supplier union shop. Had to be very careful and deliberate when we went in there with Kathy Miller. So, you know, one, we were recruiting the company to be part of the Great Lakes Bay ERN, but we also had a direct conversation with the union because the union was providing the EAP for the company. And so having that sit down with the union to say, this is how the success coach is different, how it can work with the EAP and the benefit it's going to bring your members. 
it was a very transparent, open conversation. And as soon as they saw there was a benefit to their members, then they were on board, as opposed to management, the company forcing it on the union as a project that they wanted to do. And so we got buy-in from both sides to make sure that you know we won't get any resistance or barriers thrown up by the union when we tried to roll it out. It's a very interesting kind of topic of, you know, sort of where does this fit within the overall structure of benefit programs for employees? I suspect that the transparency issue is always foremost when you're dealing with with that, whether it's unionized or not, paying attention to, I think I would guess, a kind of instant anxiety that goes along with this when you're trying to get a new ERN started that maybe this is about taking something else away or substituting a private effort for a provision in a union negotiated contract or something like that. So have you encountered that elsewhere in the country? Most of the ERN member companies are non-union. So we haven't really encountered it that much. You know, I know with hospitals and stuff like that, you've got nurses unions and things like that, and it's never been an issue. But, you know, I think it's being able to use the success coach and targeting it where the problem is. So, you know, we've had some companies that have a problem with second shift retention. And so maybe that's where we focus the efforts of the success coach, even though they're available to any employee. But we're very careful. The union and the company know that everything is confidential. So if an employee comes talk to the success coach, there's not a note in the employee's file about that. You know, we don't share anything. You know, if there's a referral from a supervisor, we let the supervisor know, yes, James came and saw me, but they don't know what we talked about. There are a couple instances where do no harm, we have to let the employer know. So if somebody is a high low driver and it appears that they've been drinking, you know, the coach will say, go tell your supervisor or HR that you've got to go home. Otherwise, I have to because we can't have you driving heavy equipment in that state. So. And then we did have an active shooter issue, you know, at one company at one time where, again, we're not law enforcement, so we're not stepping in the middle of things. But, you know, there is kind of that coaching piece that has to go into working with the other employees that end up being involved in in that type of situation. The next question we have from viewers is related to expansion. And they're thinking of it primarily in terms of what's the future for expanding ERNs nationally. But I'm also interested in hearing from Jason, just from the employer perspective, about what's it like internally. Right now, it sounds like a pretty lean and kind operation. You know, not lean and mean, but lean and kind. And you want to keep it that way, but you also want to provide as much as you can. So for Jason, what's the discussion about expansion among already established ERNs, both for individual employers and networks. James, if you could kick us off, just talk a little bit about what you see as the future of ERNs as part of the national network. Yeah. So we have ERN USA as kind of the umbrella. And then we have New York ERN, where we have several ERNs and Ohio ERN, and they kind of roll up underneath ERN USA. We have about 12 new communities we're working with from Pennsylvania and Alabama and Florida. I think Luke had some of those on the the map that he showed. We have not been actively pushing ERN as a solution. Everything has been by word of mouth where 
Jason may be at a conference and he talks about his experience. And then I get a call from another employer, you know, from another state that says, hey, how do we get something like that started here? But, you know, we do have a very developed collaborative development process that we walk through in a playbook and typically work with a community to help them get up and running as part of the network. And then, you know, they have their own administrator and they, you know, run kind of like a franchise or an independent, you know, within their state. Jason, before we go to you, there's another question on Twitter that's related to this. When people start thinking about establishing ERNs in their communities, what are some of the common roadblocks that come up that you help them deal with or things that actually end up preventing the establishment of ERN? Sometimes it's funding. We've had a couple smaller communities where they didn't have, again, more rural, where they didn't have a healthy community foundation or you know funding. So I think that was one of the roadblocks. When we initially meet with a community, whether it's a nonprofit agency, that would be the administrator, or we always mandate that they have a employer champion as part of the design team. And then when we talk to them, we have kind of a locator tool that we use and, and a series of questions that they can ask. And if they don't have a piece of it, then we can make suggestions as to, well, we need to really strengthen this area of, of relationship within the community to make sure that the employers either see you know, how this is going to benefit them or to be non-threatening where you've got nonprofits in the community that are, that are going to throw up roadblocks because they think they're doing what an ERN does. And so, again, I think if we do those educational pieces and then we bring the employers together for an exploratory meeting, you know, those are kind of the things that we think about before getting started with the employers is, are there roadblocks, you know, with the public sector, nonprofit sector that we've got to have transparent conversations? This is what we're really trying to do. We see you as partners. And then the employer, you know, whether it's through economic development or chambers, or workforce boards that we're having those conversations to identify an employer champion. Terrific. Okay, Jason, I want to come back to you now and just talk about sort of the conversation among the participating employers about this and about the ERN and meeting demand. Is it something you think about expanding? Is it something that you know you just create and try to maintain? What's the attitude of employers that take part in this? Yeah, absolutely. And that's really been our focus. I mean, we kind of alluded to it a little earlier, you know, right before uh, the pandemic hit, we were looking at increasing our overall usage. Again, just in context, LAX is a company of about 3,000 employees, with a large percentage of that employee base being hourly workforce. How we did is we kind of dipped our toe in a little bit, if you will, bought a day, a week to service a couple of plants. And as we saw the usage of the services and what that you know was able to do for our teams, that's where we started saying, hey, about six months into this, I think it was James, we said, hey, this is something we want to expand and use and do more of. And we started those conversations, like I said, right before the pandemic. When we never got to put them fully in place, but it's something, you know, now that everything's, at least for our industry, is back going 110%, we're now having to look at this and say, okay, how do we now do this? How do we increase that presence in our facilities? Because we've got, again, we're unique, we're 3,000 employees, but we got 25 facilities. That were spread across, all here in the same geographical area, but we're spread out. So having a success coach at just one facility doesn't really, you know, help the other twenty-four. So that's what's really driving us to be able to spread that. But I think the other thing, and you just touched on it a little bit, is you know how do you get companies to understand the capability of this? 
Because a lot of times I think, you know, from the top down, they say, hey, we already have an EAP. Why do I need this? That's one of the challenges, you know, for us to help overcome and, and, and show exactly what that need is, right? This is an awful example, but it's the one I think, you know, highlights it the best is that an EAP is very good at grief counseling, but an EAP doesn't help with funeral costs. Again, it's an awful example to use, but I think it highlights exactly what the difference there is and where there's, you know, the community resources that the ERN has can help with those types of things where families and our employees, you know, can struggle. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah, no, absolutely. James, did you want to add to that? Yeah. BTRN, again, is it's employer driven. So the employers make the decision. And Brent, when you, you and I met 2008, we were in a booming economy, hit the recession. You know, the employers get to decide how we act. And so the focus of hiring people before the recession hit to supporting your existing employees who are still working. And then we came into the same thing with COVID. You know, we were in a booming economy and then COVID hits. And then I know, Jason, you had most of your workforce laid off. So the coach helping them connect with unemployment insurance, navigating that system, other supports. But each ERN decides, you know, how big they want to be. Right now, Jason's in a group with five, each has a day a week. We have three more employers in Grand Rapids that want to be part of an ERN. And, you know, the five existing employers get to vote to say, if we can bring on a half-time success coach to augment our capacity, and we've got employers that want to join, do we want to be a, a group of eight? So those discussions happen at the monthly meetings or with the employers. We have some ERNs like Southwest Michigan that have 30 employers and four success coaches. And then we have others that say, no, we want to start a separate ERN. And so you end up with two or three ERNs within a urban area like Grand Rapids or other larger communities. We have one more question here, and it relates to a question that I didn't I had didn't get to. What are the qualities of a good success coach that you've noticed, James or or Jason, either of you? What are the characteristics? And the question I had was, do you ever, have you ever had the experience of taking somebody who was an employee working at a company and was getting services through an ERN who then became a success coach that the word of mouth advertising sort of gets to this? Like it's important to have credible people that are helping to share the word. So I, those are kind of related questions, but I wanted to see if you had any thoughts on it. Yeah. You know, we look for somebody that has case management experience, but if it's an employee that's gone to the same location for the last 30 years, sat in a cubicle, are they going to be comfortable driving around to eight different companies and eight different cultures? And are they going to be tech savvy enough to get on each of those Wi-Fi systems or you know VPNs to be able to, to be effective? We have had three HR folks from member companies actually become success coaches, you know, because they love the HR role, but they're also on like the school board or nonprofit boards and they have a heart for the community. So they're plugged into both. You know, they can learn the case management notes and stuff like that. We use Salesforce as our data tracking across all the ERNs. Jason has actually a worker from the state Department of Health and Human Services here in Michigan. So they can actually transact public programs and sign somebody up for food assistance or a state emergency relief. So we've got three or four of those, but they have to know the business relationship as well. So it's not government as usual. They have to get to know the 
culture of the company and HR form that relationship and then be very approachable to the employees. So, and then we have some nonprofit success coaches, you know, from like Lutheran Social Services and in Toledo and other nonprofits. And then the four coaches in Southwest Michigan are actually employees of the Upjohn Institute. And so we've had a longstanding kind of a research relationship with them from the early days where they did some evaluations and stuff. And they came up with the return on investment formula that we use. And so that's something I'd be happy to share with you, Brent, and in the group. That's terrific. Okay, so we've reached the pretty much the end of our time here. First, I want to just ask, are there any closing thoughts from any of our panelists who had something that they really wanted to say and didn't get a chance to say? I guess just I wanted to mention that one of the great things about the ERN, I think, in work on poverty alleviation and prevention and workforce development, we're often sort of sitting around waiting, maybe waiting for government or waiting for sort of a change in a community. And the great thing is, if there's a handful of employers in a community that want to get to work, right, and do something that, that will help them and will help society, they can just, they can do this, right? And if they're committed to it, I think some exciting things can happen. So I hope it's empowering to employers. And I think it'd be great if the interest of AEI spurs, you know, a couple, couple more states to have ERNs that enter into the fold. Yeah, I hope so too. That's a big part of why I wanted to do this, both the analysis and this event to talk about this. And it's really the, the single, you know, sort of most exciting aspect of this to me. We see the world around us and we want to be part of changing it, of fixing problems that are making life more difficult for people and making communities, adding to the, the struggles of communities. And the great thing about this, and I really want to congratulate James for his vision and his work on this, is that this is all bottom up. This is all about people taking responsibility for the challenges in their communities, of looking at people in a holistic way as both workers and as people who are embedded in families and communities and saying, we can only thrive if we're thriving together and taking steps to not just to talk about problems, but to do something about them. So all of you, thank you so much for your work and your dedication on this really important topic. We look forward to staying in touch as ERNs grow. We hope to see a lot of growth. I don't see the challenges that ERNs address as getting any easier. So this this kind of work is really vital. Again, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you to the audience too for hanging with us. This is a long time to commit and we appreciate your time hope that you'll be in touch with us if you've got more questions we can help you connect to any of the panelists and aei wants to be a resource to you for both understanding us and hopefully doing it so again many thanks to all the panelists and to the audience and we look forward to seeing you again in the future thank you for joining us on this episode of hardly working I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.